The Phillips got a beta fish, by the way, in case uh, anybody was wondering. Will just, just told us, and so hope you enjoy that beta, right? So you like it? Do you? Our daughter just got one. She named it Henry VIII. And don't, don't, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know why she did that. Anyway, uh, it's not coming home. So, First um, Peter uh, two, as we've been working our way through this, uh, there's some, um, there's just some really marvelous uh, promises and great things here. Um, and today, I'm going to read to you again First uh, Peter one verses two through nine, and then. Uh, We're going to uh, focus our attention on verses 6 and 7. The text is uh, in the bulletin and also up on uh, the screens behind me. Uh, 1 Peter uh, 1, verses 2 through 9. This is God's word, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Uh, In years past, this time of year, I have spent uh, my time and energy training to run a marathon, 26.2 miles. Not gonna, I ran the Richmond Marathon seven times. Not going to do that again. Um, I, I may run another marathon somewhere else someday, but I, I uh, am so familiar with that course, and I know where the, the pain is on it that uh, it's just not a lot of fun to, uh, to do it. One of the things that you learn in marathon training, two things that you learn, first is... The best marathon runners, the best long-distance runners, have a high tolerance for pain. Because you can't run 26.2 miles without pain. Some discomfort. Even the guys who run it in, you know, really, really, really fast will tell you they're tired at the end of it and uh, are tired and sore the next day. And so uh, part of what you do in training is to train your muscles and your heart, and your lungs, and your brain to tolerate the pain. Secondly, the other thing that you do when you train for a marathon is you have to train your gut to take on nutrients, nutrition. You have to take on stuff that will give you energy and that will help uh, your muscles continue to function. So... Uh, Because you can't run 26.2 miles without a little boost, a little extra, some water, some some Gatorade, some uh, gummy bears, or whatever your particular uh, uh, favorite uh, thing is. And so um, uh, you need that. In fact, um, over in Bellevue, when you run through there, they'll give you a shot of uh, Jack Daniels (laughs) as you go through there. Believe it or not, 
Uh, and there's some guys that'll hand out uh, cups of beer too. So there's some calories there, um, uh, some carbohydrates. So I never took them up on that. Just the smell of it at like mile 20, you're like, mm-mm, mm-mm. So, um, so the, the, I, I tell you that because I think that's what Peter's doing with the saints that he's writing to. He sees them uh, training, working, living uh, uh, in a painful situation, in a difficult situation, and he wants to nourish their souls. Uh, and that's what he's doing uh, in, uh, in this text. Now, um, when I preached this this morning at the 9 o'clock service uh, about these various trials, uh, there were two people uh, that I knew of in that service who uh, have uh, been diagnosed with terminal cancer. There were the grandparents of a child uh, who will likely not survive birth. Uh, there were people there, women, whose husbands have committed adultery. Uh, there were uh, other people there who have been um, struggling with hunger and want and lack. And so when you think about that and, and you look at that, one of the things that you have to say and one of the things that a pastor does, uh, in, uh, and which is what Peter is the, really the pastor of these people as he writes them this letter, is he wants to tell them the way things are. I wish, I really do wish, and I long for a world where pain and struggle and suffering not only will not exist, but in the mystery of the gospel, is not necessary. Now I know that's, that's a hard word. That's a very hard word. Um, and, but exact, that's exactly what Peter gets at in this text when he has given us these vast, uh, uh, wonderful, beautiful promises about the grace and the the love of God, the hope that we have, the inheritance that is set aside for us, and the fact that he has set us aside, has set his love upon us for that inheritance. Having said that, he recognizes the context in which we hear these promises, the context in which we, we uh, believe these promises is in the context often of difficulty and pain and brokenness and suffering. And so... Uh, what, I've what, what we're going to do today, uh, normally, you know, you just kind of sum up a text and a couple of points, and uh, you tell a couple of stories, and you uh, uh, illustrate some things, and then you give people a thing or two to do, you know, or to believe, or to know. Uh, today, what I want to do is, I'm, I'm, there's, uh, we're just going to go through this, and there's about 20 bullet points <laughs> to this, and... Um, uh, you can pick out a couple that you like as, uh, as, uh, as we go through it. So, um, 
So what he's been doing here is our life in Christ is full of joy and hope and wonder at the overwhelming goodness of God. And at the same time, they're very real and very painful circumstances in our lives. So those two things are going on all the time and uh, are true. Now, sometimes we kid ourselves into thinking that we can miss some of this stuff. Or sometimes we kid ourselves into thinking that somehow or other we will be immune to these things. But the fact of the matter is, as, as we'll see later on in this epistle when we get into it, uh, there is suffering that comes to people simply because they are in Christ. And so, so as, we, as we look at this and as we think about this, Peter's going to kind of expand our vision uh, for this. He may not relieve our pain, but what he will do is he will show us a deeper and, and more profound sense of who God is for us and the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished on our, our uh, behalf. So the first thing that we need to see is that these things that come our way, these circumstances, are real and they are painful. He uses the word here that we, you may be grieved, that you may be tested, that you may experience this like it is fire, right? So, so there's, there's no minimizing this, right? You don't, you don't say to people, oh, you're imagining the pain or, or there's some kind of phantom difficulty here. No, and, and, and notice that Peter doesn't say, he doesn't outline here, I know that some of you have cancer. I know some of you uh, have terrible bosses. I know that some of you are uh, uh, unloved by your spouses. I know that some of you are uh, uh, barren. I know it, what, whatever it is, he doesn't, he doesn't say, do that because the fact is you already know. You know what you're suffering with. You know what brokenness you experience. You know the difficulties that are in your life. You live with them, right? And so when he says here these, these various trials that grieve you, that test you, that are, are there, that are like fire, I don't have to tell you what they are. You know, right? We, we already experience and we already feel those things. The second thing that he says about them is that they are short-lived. He says, if for a little while... You may have to experience these things. Now, now one of the things about a little while, uh, one person's little while and another person's little while are, are very different. Uh, I may say to you, I can hold my breath for a long time. And that might be two minutes. Two minutes. Uh, in two weeks, I will have been the pastor of this church for... 22 years. And in some ways, those things honestly don't feel that different to me. I, uh, when I go to the school where uh, my wife teaches, there are two women who are teaching children in that school that I used to babysit. And when I say babysit, I mean babysit. They were babies. I remember when they were born. And I think, what happened? I'm not any older. <laughs> what happened, right? So, 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 the, so the fact is, what, what, however you want to define short-lived, the, 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 the fact of the matter is, I, I, I'm, I'm certain that almost any struggle, any suffering, any pain, any grief, any trial that you're going through, 
Uh, if you're in it, it doesn't feel short-lived. It doesn't feel temporary. But what Peter wants us to understand is, listen, that is true of everything that is, that is a part of this planet. The fact is, uh, our lives, our money, our houses, our relationships, our, our, our pains, our joys, all of these things, they're all temporary because we are bound for, headed for, destined for something bigger and eternal. And so all of these things that we experience in our life now that we think this is the way it's going to be, from now on, the fact of the matter is it won't be. So, so just like uh, <clears throat> stuff wears out, things uh, uh, go away, the, the fact is that's true of these trials as well. They wear out. They don't last forever. They certainly don't last into eternity. Second, thirdly, they are refining. He says that through this process, we get refined. Now, when, whenever you think about refining, refinement, uh, what you recognize is, is like when we refine oil or when we refine sugar or we, we refine some kind of uh, uh, raw product, we turn it into something that is better, something that is more useful, something that is uh, uh, more beautiful, something that is just, uh, that has a, a real use in it, right? So, so the fact is, this refining that goes on here, this ha has a point, and the point is that we are shown through the refining process as being genuine. So that what it is we say we believe, who it is that we say we believe, what it is that we are banking on in our lives, it is shown to be true. It is shown to be real. It is shown to be genuine by the way in which uh, uh, we walk through this time of refining. And let me, let me be clear about this. What, Walking through refining and accepting refining doesn't mean that you go through it painlessly and doesn't mean that you go through it as if there's no difficulty and doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt and it's not hard and they're not tears and there's not grief and there's not difficulty. All of those things are true. And this is not said to us to, to sort of in, in some way lessen the pain, but to help us to see and to understand the nature of, of life and the nature of the gospel and the nature of the work that God is doing in us. They result, these difficulties, in praise and glory for us and for Jesus, right? So, so there's a sense in which what happens here is that as we go through this refining and as we go through this change that happens to us, there is an audience. There are people that are watching. When, when uh, uh, the uh, devil presented himself to God, and God said to him, have you seen my servant Job? Like, there's nobody like him in the world. He is awesome. And, jo and Satan says, hey, God, you made him rich. You made him successful. He's got lots of kids. He's got lots of sheep and goats. And he's got lots of servants and houses. And, and everything is coming up roses for him. No one would follow you. No one would love you except you buy them off. So Job is the recipient of your bribe. You're both losers. Take the bribe away, and he'll curse you. And so, we remember Job today as the man who walked through that, crying out, mystified, unclear, and yet he, we, there's a sense in which he reflects 
we see the glory of God in him, and we see God's glory uh, through what he did, right? Uh, Parenthetically, uh, these trials build our fellowship with one another. And that's one of the things that's hard for us to understand about this is, is that, that the you, every time he says you in this passage, it is plural. And so what he's telling us is, listen, these trials, these difficulties are, are not just something that you go through individually. They're not just something that happens to you by yourself. The fact of the matter is the whole church, the whole body of Christ is engaged and involved with this. And we suffer We struggle, we go through these things together. Paul says that we comfort one another with the comfort whereby we have been comforted. And so as we go through these things, as we go through these difficulties, there's a sense in which our fellowship and suffering is built up. This is something that happens to us. And this is is something that we participate in together. This is something that we, we walk through. Now, you can't feel my pain. You can't uh, feel what I'm feeling or, or that sort of thing, but you can love me, you can listen to me, you can remind me of what's true, you can bring me a casserole, you can bring me a pie, you can get me to an appointment, you can hold my hand, you can pat me on the back, you can call me up, you can pray for me. So we're in this uh, together, Right? And Peter wants us to be able to say without anger and frustration, this is what God has for me right now. Now, That doesn't mean we we might not ask the question, well, why do you have that for me right now? Or this sure is hard. But the fact is, what he wants us to understand and what he wants us to see in this is, is that God is not absent from the trial, that God is not somehow or other removed from this. And, 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 and he is not just some sort of disengaged or disinvolved person or that he's engaged and involved in some way of toying with you or messing with you or something like that. The fact of the matter is, as we, as we look at this, what he wants us to come to is see the great hope, see the great work, see all of these things, and see too that as you go through this refining process, God is not absent from that. In fact, he is intimately involved and with you as you go through that. Next, we have to see that God uses sin sinlessly. So when people are persecuting these followers of Jesus, when they are suffering, when they are experiencing difficulty, they are being sinned against. And God holds those people accountable. But he does not, that sin is not greater than his purpose, right? When we see the cross of Jesus Christ, when we see the injustice, and we see those men beat him, and we see those men tear his flesh, and we see those men nail his body to a cross, and we see those men mocking him, what we, when, when, when we see that they are sinning, They are sinning. The injustice of that is is clear. But God uses that sin. God uses their evil intent. 
And by that, through that, he redeems it in such a way that that is the source, that is the fountainhead of the atoning work that Jesus did for us. When Jesus died on the cross, he experienced uh, uh, the the sin uh, of, of the world, but he experienced directly those people's evil sin, evil intent against him. And yet that is what God uses That is our glory. That is the way in which we get redeemed, right? And so the fact is these hard things may come our way and it may be difficult for us to understand that, but the fact is we can trust that God is so big and so gracious and so good that he is using other sin or the effects of sin in the world sinlessly in our lives. And he says this twice in, in this epistle, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, Then for doing evil, and the next slide, please, Megan. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, one of the things that that you have to see about this, one of the things that we have to to get at about this is, is every time something terrible happens, we want to know why. We want to know why. And there are a zillion reasons for why things happen. Uh, there are, uh, and, and there are no reasons that are uh, totally satisfying and so, deli- so, uh, so clear and uh, so direct, right? Um, but what we do know is, is that God is not absent from that. Now, the way I think about this is... Uh, I, I think of myself uh, and the whole world, really, as all of <laughs> this, this. You're going to laugh when I say this, but bear with me because it's a great illustration. I think of myself as sitting in my little corner, and I have been tasked to paint a painting in my little corner, and it's about this big. And all of you have your painting in your little corner that you're doing. Now, mine is better than yours. <laughs> and, 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 and more beautiful and more wonderful, right? But here I am, I have this, right? And so when I don't have the paint that I want or my, the head falls off my brush or something difficult happens, I can't figure that out. And it is, irritates the living daylights out of me and causes me all kinds of angst. Well, all I see is this one little painting that I'm working on. God sees billions of them and sees them all fitting together into something more grand, more beautiful than I could ever imagine. Now, now the, the, the fact is, uh, so those difficulties and those challenges and those things that come my way uh, seem to me to be as terrible as they are, as hard as they are, as awful as they are, Somehow or other, in the master work that God is doing, that the grace of Jesus Christ for me turns those things to good, changes those things, and, and it fits together, not only for my good, but for the good of others as well, and for God's glory. And so, so while it, 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 my, my little painting and my little issue and my little thing that I'm working on right here seems to be like this could be so much better or so much different if this didn't happen, but the fact is God sees it all and is ordering it all. 
And he has promised me not only glory, but he has promised me that he will order these things for for my good and for his glory as well. Lastly, one of of my last uh, points as, as we get through this is, Peter wants us to understand that, that the suffering is purposeful. In other words, the, and the purpose there is the refining and the testing to show our faith is genuine. And I'm going to explain a little bit in just a minute the testing part, but I want to correct some bad theology. <clears throat> uh, J.I. Packer said, uh, wrote a book years ago uh, called Hot Tub Theology. I don't know why he was so wrapped up in... Uh, uh, plumbing in this, uh, in this uh, 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 book because he says that one of the jobs of a pastor is to sort through uh, sewage and call it what it is and say it stinks. It stinks really bad. Sometimes bad things happen to us and we think, I must not be learning that lesson that God's trying to teach me because he wouldn't bring this into my life if I just learned the lesson. Now, there are some times where you need to learn a lesson, i.e., three chili cheese dogs after 10 o'clock at night. Not a good idea, okay? You need to learn the lesson not to do that, okay? That's bad. That's gonna end bad. That's just, just not gonna be good, okay? So there. There's your culinary lesson for the day. But the fact is, suffering doesn't come into your life just to teach you a lesson, just to come along and say, oh, okay, you need to learn this. Oh, you didn't learn it. I'm going to do it again until you learn it. I'm going to do it again until you learn it. I'm going to do it again until you, until you learn it. But the fact is that what God is doing here is something bigger than teaching a lesson. What we're talking about here is the glory of his name. What we're talking about here is the salvation of our souls. What we're talking about here is is the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ that he receives as he works and lives and loves his people. And so so the purpose that that we have here is this, this, this testing, this refining, that what happens there is it changes us, it changes the way we view ourselves, and it gives glory to God. uh, Piper says this, when gold is melted in the fire, the impurities float to the top and can be removed. When the refining fire is over, the gold is even more valuable. So it is with your faith in God. You have faith, you trust his promises, but there are impurities in it. And And I wanna say that one of the ways that God refines us is we don't see the impurities. We, we don't see them, certainly not the way God sees them, right? And so there are elements of murmuring and pessimism. I speak from, from painful experience. I don't, I don't murmur, I shout. Uh, and, and there are tendencies to trust money and position and popularity alongside God, dirt mingled with the gold of faith. These impurities in our faith hinder our fullest experience of the goodness and greatness of God. So God designs to refine our faith with the fires of trial and distress. His aim is that our faith be more pure and more genuine, right? That is, that it be more utterly dependent on him and not on things and other persons 
for our joy. And the fact that I would actually prefer to have my joy dependent on other persons or other things than go through the refining is itself quite an impurity. Next slide. Um, my, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of the, the, the three Hebrew children. I don't know why they're called the three Hebrew children, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are working for King Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, megalomaniac, makes a statue, wants everybody, when the music comes on, wants everybody to bow down to it and worship. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not going to do it. And, you know, one of... One of the ways I'll know I'm not a failure in ministry is before I retire, if someone has a child and names them one of those names. I think uh, if I could have gotten away with that, I would have done that because those, those are quite, you, you wouldn't forget those names. So Nebuchadnezzar confronts them with their unwillingness to bow down to his statue. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. That's pretty bold. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Now, it would be great if that was the end of the story, right? If that's, he's going to deliver us, we don't have anything to worry about. But they go on to say, but if not, but if not, if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, or worship the golden image that you've set up. Now, you know, what do you do with people like that? And so it fires Nebuchadnezzar up, and so he wants the furnace heated zillions of times more than it's ever been heated before, and in fact, the guys who throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire die themselves from the heat, and Nebuchadnezzar stands at a distance, and he looks in the fire, and what does he see? Hey, I thought we put three guys in there. There's four. The Lord's in there with them in the fire. Giving them lemonade? I, I don't know. I don't know what, uh, I'm sure comforting them, enlarging their vision. I can't, you know, wouldn't you want to know what that was like to be in the middle of that fire with, with the Lord? How crazy would that have been, Right? So, so, the, so the fact of the matter is, as we, as we walk through this, what, whatever the refining thing is that God is doing in our life, he's not standing apart from us in that he is with us. He understands pain, perhaps better than any of us ever could, because he knows the original intent for this creation down to the, the smallest particle, and he sees the tragedy and the catastrophe that sin and rebellion has brought to our world. Now, you have to answer the question, you know, how am I supposed to feel about this, right? And, you know, because it seems like the... the um, um, the weight of the scripture is, as we've already sang, rejoice, 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 rejoice. I'm tired of you telling me to rejoice. I am not going to rejoice because it would be dishonest, right? So how do I feel in the midst of this? Well, Paul describes his life as a follower of Christ this way. Through honor and dishonor, 
through slander and praise. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We spent six months last year talking about that, that we lament the brokenness and the cancer and the tumors and the hatefulness and the racism and the selfishness. And yet we rejoice because we know they don't win. And we know that Jesus suffered to deliver us from that. So as you think about this, you know, the fact of the matter is the way we kind of have to keep our sanity in the midst of this is a full-on, full appreciation of the brokenness and the pain and the sinfulness of the world. And on the other hand, the full-on understanding of the goodness and the love and the atoning work that Jesus Christ has accomplished for me and the promise that he holds out to me of the inheritance and that he will keep me till I receive that inheritance. We also know that these trials are limited and watched and precious to God. David writes this in Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. (laughs) Um, And you could put, you could take man out and you could put whatever you wanted to in there. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me. Just He likes that word trample. Trample on me all day long. For many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And God, whose word I praise, and God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Well, he's about to answer that question. All day long, they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. Anything lurking in your life? Maybe you weren't thinking that things were lurking in your life, but now I've sensitized you to that, and you're looking over your shoulder to wonder what's lurking behind you. They watch my steps as they've waited for my life. For their crime will they escape, and wrath cast down the peoples. O God, you've kept count of all my tossings. I um, was always really grateful that uh, my daughter was not a cheerleader when I watched those guys throw those girls up in the air at football games and think, that's bad. That's not going to end well. So God keeps count of all our tossings. He put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me and God whose word I praise and the Lord whose word I praise and God I trust I shall not be afraid. So in other words, what he recognizes there is is that God sees our suffering and it is precious to him. God sees our suffering and he knows what it's like. God sees our suffering and he walks in the furnace with us. God sees our suffering and he limits it and he holds it in check. God sees and counts our tears and has them in his bottle and our days written in his book. Faith shimmers and glows when it is tested. Now, um, God doesn't test us so that he can find out what we're made of. God tests us so that glory can be given to Jesus Christ as as we walk with him, as we trust him, as we lament, as we cry out, and as we long for him to bring to fruition all of his promises to us in Jesus Christ. We are tested because 
we don't know the genuineness of our faith. And then lastly, there's plenty of glory to go around. Uh, He says this testing of the genuineness of our faith so that there will be praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so commentators debate about, well, is Jesus getting all the glory or is he the glory hog here or, you know, can I get a little bit of this? There's more than enough to go around. Consider my servant Richard. Consider my servant Jack. Consider my servant Sarah. He delights. He looks at you and says, look at that. I made that. I redeemed that. Look at them. He hands you that crown. He tells you, well done, good and faithful servant. Honored before all. And you take that crown and you throw it at his feet. You see, that's what, that's where this ends up. Now, one, one last, last thing to say here, and I, and I said this at the beginning, and I, I want to I reiterate it. I wish for you that you would never have to suffer. I wish for us that I could say to you that being a follower of Jesus gets you through this veil of tears without getting wet. I wish I could tell you that sin is not as profound a force in our world and in our lives as it is. But what I can tell you is he will not leave you or forsake you. He knows your pain knows your tears and knows your story. What you walk through today did not happen by accident, but neither did it happen simply because he's toying with you. It happens, at least from this text, because of his purpose of demonstrating the genuineness and the glory of belonging to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord,